stoning. It's an ancient act of capital punishment whereby everyone in the community participates in the death of the offender. Everyone. Today, um, the UN and people who make decrees about what is just and what is not have declared that stoning is a barbaric and torturous means of justice that ought not be carried out in our day. So what would so offend God and so endanger his people that he would require the death penalty by a means such as stoning for those who commit such offenses? Today we open up Deuteronomy chapter 17 and we find there um, one, possibly two of those offenses. And so uh, we need to pray and ask God that we would, uh, with appropriate sobriety and appropriate earnestness, heed the warnings that come to us from his word about these particular sins. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, we'll ready our hearts to receive this instruction from the Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. We who are hard of hearing, help us hear. We who are slow to obey, help us to obey. For these good gifts come from you and we are in need of them. May we sit now gladly under your word as it comes to us. May this ministry be carried out by the work of your Holy Spirit, which we are wholly dependent upon. And in the name of Jesus and for his glory, we pray. Amen. We'll begin at the very back end of chapter 16, where we stopped last week, where we find Moses teaching the people that you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, it's made abundantly clear, God loves justice, and he expects his people to carry it out. God loves justice, and he hates the corruption of it, the failure to implement it. Um, and it is that failure to implement justice that is one of the capital crimes that I alluded to earlier. 
as we'll see a bit farther along in our passage today. But in these verses we are looking at, essentially God is setting up through Moses a court system that's to ensure justice in the land when the people enter the land that God has promised them. Um, crucial to that system are righteous judges and officers who will carry out their verdicts with justice. And the people are warned in strong terms, don't pervert justice by showing partiality, particularly by taking a bribe. And this, once again, is one of those innumerable protections of the poor in the book of Deuteronomy because the poor couldn't afford to pay a bribe. They were just victims of those who could pay, who could buy a miscarriage of justice. And bribery, as we've already seen in Deuteronomy, is contrary to the very character of who God is. Back in chapter 10 of the book of Deuteronomy, we read, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And according to verse 19 in our text, it perverts justice, it blinds the eyes of the wise, and subverts the cause of the righteous. Accepting or paying a bribe is contrary to God's ways because it trashes justice, and our God is just. It's a, this is not just an ancient problem. Uh, there, there is... Um, a thing called the Bribe Payers Index. People who research the prevalence of bribes in different countries around the world, particularly they focus on, I think, the largest uh, 28 economies. And they are scored on a scale of 0 to 10. A maximum score of 10 corresponds with the view that people from that country never bribe abroad. Okay. So... A 10 would be, mean that no one, if the United States got a 10, mean no one from America ever participates in bribery when we do international business. A zero would mean they always do. Now, it's interesting. Switzerland and the Netherlands are the highest score, the best score. The least likely to take a bribe are the people from Netherlands and Switzerland. The worst is um, Russia and China. And, and they are only the worst because uh, countries like Haiti are too small to be included in this study. There are more corrupt countries than Russia and China, but amongst the largest economies in the world, they are the worst. The U.S., we are somewhere in the middle of the pack. We're only 10th best out of a group of about 25 or 30 countries. If you are in business, you may well be asked to take or pay a bribe, especially if you do business in any of these countries. Why do so many American companies pay bribes? I'm sure the answer is complicated on the one hand, but on the other, it might be quite simple. We love money. 
bribery is about greed. Which the Apostle Paul says, interestingly for our passage, greed is a form of idolatry. If you travel on a mission trip, there's a good chance in many of the countries where we do mission work that you are going to be asked to pay a bribe. There's a group called Global Health Missions, and they've come out with a, a best practices document that's really fascinating for doctors and healthcare professionals who go on mission trips. And they say that bribery is one of the most common moral problems for two thirds world Christians. Places like India and China, Indonesia, places like that, Turkey. They say the problem is so prevalent that it's almost impossible not to encounter it. This moral dilemma is also faced by those who go as missionaries to these countries. The question for the short-term healthcare missions leader, that's who they're talking to, is how to respond to bribery. There is something that is, this is something that is best not left until the last minute because pressure tends to blur our thinking. And so here's what they come up with. This is brilliant for best practices for global health missions, okay, missionaries who are traveling. Best practices, are you ready? This is it. Do not use bribes as a means of accomplishing God's will, okay? That's the best practice. Do not use bribes as a means of accomplishing God's will. Don't pay a bribe. It's contrary to justice, and it misrepresents our God who is just. More than that, it may well be a betrayal, an idolatrous betrayal of him going on in our hearts for sometimes just for mere money or for security. So beware of forsaking justice. Verse 20 there indicates that the blessing of God depends upon it. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God loves justice and expects his people to exercise justice in all their dealings, especially with those in need, whom we might be able to take advantage of. Justice, Moses says, and only justice you shall follow. Well, the next few verses, the focus uh, seems to shift a bit. Um, away from justice and towards um, idolatrous practices and acceptable worship practices. He says in verse 21, You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. This was a Canaanite idolatrous practice of their worship. People were living in the land. You shall not set up a pillar, which the Lord your God hates. Same, same idea. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. And again, it does seem like a bit of an abrupt shift of focus, but Moses continues, and he's now going to apply his concern for justice to these matters. In verse 2, if there is found among you, within any of your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, 
in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden and it's told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This defection to serve other gods is a violation of that very first commandment. You remember it. You shall have no other gods before me. And as such, it requires the severest of penalties and provides the severest test to their justice system. Lives are at stake here. And even with idolaters, God is intent on protecting and preserving justice. Look, look again at these verses, that in verse 4. If they hear of someone who's practicing idolatrous worship, if they hear of it, they must make a diligent inquiry. It's not enough just to hear about it. There must be a diligent inquiry made, and it must be ascertained that it is certain and true. No room for fuzziness in this matter. It must be a diligent inquiry, must be certain and true. Um, then in verse 6, it says... Um, that there must be more than one witness. Must be two or three, at least, witnesses. Okay. Verse 7 requires that those witnesses be certain enough of their testimony so as to be willing to cast the first stone. So in the severest of test cases, God is going to great lengths, even in this case, to protect justice but don't miss the strong condemnation of idolatry here it is evil in the sight of the Lord your God it is verse 7 an evil thing that they have done and as a result it merits capital punishment even death by stoning that is how determined God is to keep this evil from taking root in Amidst his people, it must, it must be purged. Now, when you read through this section, there's one verse that really seems out, odd. It seems out of place. And that's the first verse in chapter 17. In the midst of all of this stuff about justice and idolatry, you find this verse, You shall not sacrifice the Lord your God an ox or sheep in which a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Why is there seemingly a random verse on not offering blemish sacrifices in the midst of a section condemning idolatry? I think, I think it's probably not out of place at all. Let me see if I can explain to you why. The offering of this blemished sacrifice, you'll notice, it's hated 
just like idolatry is. It's called an abomination, just like idolatry is. Maybe when we offer less than our best to God in worship, it's a tip that we have an idolatrous heart, that we are withholding our best for someone or something else. Remember, idolatry is not restricted to formal acts of worship. The Bible warns us of idols of the heart, where we love something more than God, we trust something more than God, we delight in something more than God, we serve something more gladly, more fully than we do God. What are you giving your best to? Who gets your best efforts? Who are you most devoted to? Who are you most concerned about whether you please them or not? Who gets your best? Does God get your best? Is your best offered to God? Or are you saving it for someone else? Maybe for you. See, the answers to these kinds of questions can be indicators that our hearts are wayward, and it is a great concern to God. See, to, to let our hearts become idolatrous was a capital offense. It ought to be a concern to us. So much so that the only hope that we cling to for an idolatrous heart is what we just celebrated at this table. That Christ died to bear our idolatrous hearts and the sins rooted there. To bear the penalty. He bore the death penalty for us. So we would be free to live for him. Well, back in our passage, if any case, verse 8, arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that's too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. So this is another, we're back on the justice theme and we have another protection for justice. It's a kind of a court of referral. If it was too difficult for the local people to figure out in their village, then they sent to the place of God's choosing. And there there would be a priest or priests who would speak in his name and a judge. And they would decree what God had said about this matter. And what follows in the next couple of verses is of utmost importance if that declaration of justice is to be preserved and carried out. Verse 10, you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, from that court of referral. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you either to the right hand or to the left, man who acts presumptuously 
by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. See, justice requires obedience to the verdict. It must be enacted. It must be carried out. Because the verdict is from the place of God's choosing by the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, then it carries the weight of God's verdict. And it would be presumptuous for anyone to defy this verdict. This verdict that comes to them through God's anointed and appointed processes. And instead they do what they think is best. It would be presumptuous because it would be saying that I have a better ruling than God. I have more wisdom than God in this matter. And so the sin of presumption, of disregarding God's just verdict... It's a sin of disobedience, and it's deemed worthy of capital punishment. That man, it says, shall die. And if they do not obey the just verdict, then justice will not, will be, excuse me, miscarried. And this is worthy of the severest of judgments. Their obedience protects justice from being miscarried. Their obedience and then this severe punishment, which acts as a deterrent, protects justice from spreading amongst God, injustice from uh, spreading amongst God's people. Um, I don't have a lot of time to say much about capital punishment, nor is that really the primary point that comes to us from this passage. Um, but clearly, there are crimes amongst God's people in the Old Testament that God decreed were worthy of capital punishment. You cannot say, since God and His Son are about love, that capital punishment is inconsistent with God's character. It's not. He is a holy, wrathful Righteous and loving God. N.T. Wright tries to put those together for us. And he says, The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages this beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. So having said that, we cannot just say, okay, so there was capital punishment in the book of Deuteronomy, in, in Leviticus chapter 20 especially, so we must follow that lockstep one for one in our day. Writer Bob Deffenbaugh helped me think about this. He says, it should be clear at the outset that the Old Testament in general, and our text in particular, requires capital punishment in a number of instances. He's writing about Leviticus 20, which is also about capital punishment. 
He says the issue is whether or not capital punishment of Leviticus can be viewed as timeless and universal so that what God commanded Israel to observe is also binding on those who live in later times. Some would dogmatically maintain that Old Testament texts such as ours do make capital punishment a mandate. But he says, let us beware in being too dogmatic on the basis of our text, however, since it proves far more than we would wish. Are we willing to insist on capital punishment for every offense which is listed here? We may insist that God's word requires the life of the murderer, but do we also insist that the one who has sexual relations with his wife during her monthly period also has to die for such a sin? That's a Leviticus 20 capital crime. Clearly, not all of the offenses deemed worthy of capital punishment amidst Canaanite idolatry in the promised land would be deemed worthy of that in our culture and day. And though Paul gives to the government the right to bear the sword, it's not always clear that our processes protect justice with the kind of rigor that's required in Deuteronomy 17 that we've just walked through. Justice may require capital punishment in certain cases, but justice also requires the utmost vigilance on the part of those who exercise it. So thankfully, that's all I have time to say about that. Our text closes with a little bit of a different shift. Um, in verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. God says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So the focus now turns to the kind of king that can lead the nation justly in justice, in matters of justice. As the queen of Sheba declared to King Solomon in 1 Kings 10, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he's made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. It's what kings are supposed to do. And in order to do that, it must be the, the king chosen by God, not just by the people. He must be an Israelite which is again a protection from idolatry coming in through a foreign king. And he must guard his heart against three idolatrous temptations. He must self-limit his acquisition of horses, wives, and gold. As Christopher Wright puts it, weapons, women, and wealth. Okay. Those must be self-limited by the king. He says this is absolutely contrary to what kings did in their day. It's fascinating what he says. He says, um, weapons, women, and wealth. Why else be a king? Okay. He says, but De Deuteronomy starkly declares, not so in Israel. The king they are to have 
is to be as unlike the kings of other nations as one can imagine. Their king is to be wholly loyal to Yahweh their God, a king who will trust in God, but in his, not in God, he says, but in his own defenses, a king who will, whose heart turns away because of many wives, a king whose great wealth leads in the snares of pride, such a king will kick, quickly lead the people in the same disastrous direction. These are three categories that still tempt those who lead God's people today. Money, sex, and power. One of my favorite articles on coaching is written about a man named Joe Ehrman. Joe Ehrman played um, football in the NFL for about 13 years, I think, if I remember right. And he was a defensive lineman for what was the Baltimore Coats at that time. He retired. He went on to receive training, became a pastor, and has had a remarkable ministry in the Baltimore area. Um, but it says, apart from the X's and O's of football, he is now a, a volunteer coach, assistant coach uh, for a football team, a high school football team up there. He says, aside from the X's and O's of football, everything Aaron teaches at Gilman High stems from his belief that our society does a horrible job of teaching boys how to be men and virtually every problem we face can somehow be traced back to this failure. That's why he developed a program called Building Men for Others, which has become the signature philosophy of Gilman football. The first step is to tear down what Ehrman says are the standard criteria. Athletic ability, sexual conquest, and economic success. Does that sound familiar? That's weapons, women, and wealth. Okay? That's Deuteronomy. In the false definition of masculinity that's being pushed on our young men. Ehrman says the problem is that it sets men up for tremendous failures in our lives because it gives us this concept that what we need to do as men is compare what we have, compete with others for what they have. As a young boy, I'm going to compare my athletic ability to yours and compete for whatever attention that brings. When I get older, I'm going to compare my girlfriend to yours and compete for whatever status I can acquire by being with the prettiest or the coolest or the best girl I can get. Ultimately, as adults, we compare bank accounts and job titles, houses and cars, and we compete for the amount of security and power that those represent. We compare, we compete, that's all we ever do. It leaves most men feeling isolated and alone, and it destroys any concept of community. And Moses would add, it makes us idolaters. And so the king of God's people is one who must protect himself from these temptations. And our closing verses give us one more, or actually a couple more criterion for this king. It says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book. This is really interesting. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and those statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. 
See, the king must meditate on the book of the law of God every day. Every day. He must learn to fear God through obedience to these words. He must submit to them like everybody else. He must not think that he is the exception. And this is a tremendous temptation for Christian leaders even in our day. We subtly slide out of humility and into exceptionalism. We give advice that we don't follow. And we explain it away because we are exceptional. It sounds like this. You need to be in the Word. But I have this vast reservoir of knowledge, and I'm reading Christian stuff all the time, so I really don't have to meditate on the Word every day. You need to meditate on the Word. You need to invest time with your family. But my work is so important that I can cheat my family. You need to watch what you watch, but I need to watch that stuff so I know what's going on in the world. You need to give generously of your money to the church, but me, I give my time. You need to, but I don't, because I am exceptional. And that is one of the great snares set for those of us who lead that we give advice that we don't follow. And Moses says this is not the kind of leader that the people of God need. They need someone whose heart will not be lifted up above his brothers. But the only way that he'll be exceptional is in his submission to the scriptures and his obedience to them, not in his excuses for not following them. Leaders at North Way. Are you sliding into exceptionalism where you think you're somebody special who teaches one thing and lives another, who counsels one thing and lives another? Kings in the Old Testament, they're more than leaders. They're examples for us all. All of us need to beware of the temptation of money, sex, and power, and the deception of exceptionalism. If not, then we will not be able to be advocates for justice in the church and in our world. And he has told you, O oh man, Micah says, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in a time of reflection. This is our response. Where we think about what is marking us. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, I just want you to use this time to reflect and think about what God is saying to you through his word this morning. To prayerfully meditate on the words that are being sung. and To examine your own soul in light of this. Will you bow with me? Deuteronomy 17 connects justice violators and idol worshipers. They are those who love money and gain more than they care for justice, especially for those in need. They are those who have given their best to something or someone other than God. They are those who have a proud 
or presumptuous heart. And it results in spotty obedience. They are those who don't self-limit the great temptations of weapon and women and wealth, of money, sex, and power. Are you in humble submission to the word? Or do you think you're exceptional? Do any of these things mark you? Are any of the, these things robbing you of the spiritual power and integrity to be an advocate for justice? God commanded his people to take radical action to purge their land of these great evils. Repentance is the first of those radical actions. Listen prayerfully. Clear the stage of your heart of idols. Come, bow low before God and repent as he speaks to you about your idols.